Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In the late 1840s, the California Gold Rush began. Tens of thousands of Cantonese men and a few women would travel through Hong Kong from Guangdong to sail on to San Francisco to seek their fortune. Academic and author Dr. Elizabeth Sin researched the stories of these merchants and miners to create the book Pacific Crossing: California Gold, Chinese Migration, and the Making of Hong Kong. One of the people that I write about is Zhu Yutip, and he had this firm called Chang Wu. I saw this in many of the invoices and the shipping papers and so forth, and in many of the directories. And I just thought, wow, who is this chap? He is very central in the ship in the shipping trade and also in the cargo trade between Hong Kong and San Francisco. So I I couldn't get my teeth into Zhu Yutip. So one day I was in the library and I was doing some photocopying. And、um, a colleague of mine, who's also a historian, and I said, "Oh, I wish I could find out something about this guy Zhu Yutian." You know, and she said, "That's my great great grandfather." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Do you have anything in your at home, right? Any documents?" And said, yes,、yeah, she says, "I, my father just died, and I've been clearing out his stuff, and he's got lots of stuff, and I'll I'll let you see them." People who were very wealthy didn't necessarily go abroad, but they were engaged in the trade. They were interested, very optimistic about the trade, and they will give some money to a nephew or a friend or a relative or somebody from the same village and say, "Okay, well, if you you want to go, you can have to take this money. Go to California, go to Australia, go to Peru, go wherever you you wish to, and do business. If you lost the money, then that's." You don't owe me, but if you make money, then we can share. All right. So, so was, who were the, who were these people? Then they were based in what southern China? They were southern Chinese. I think、um, he's from Namhoi, so I I would imagine that many of his people would be based would be from Namhoi as well, which is near Guangzhou. However, he also had、uh, relatives all the way up the coast from Hong Kong, through the Shanghai area right up to Shandong, and so they had these.、Uh, This sort of Nanbukhong trade, the south-north trade between Hong Kong and Southeast Asia, and he had these strategic partners all along the coast. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the Pacific, he had associates in California, in Chile, in Panama, in Peru. So he really had the whole Pacific Ocean locked up. Some of the things that this friend of mine. Uh, Patricia showed me, actually, were the account books that his father had, showing that some of these companies were still paying dividends and interest and everything to members of the family up to the 1950s.、Oh, Now, Mr. Jiu started off in the 18 late 1840s, so it's a hundred years of business、uh, that that continued in Hong Kong, which very few people knew about. I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Sin, the author of Pacific Crossing: California Gold, Chinese Migration, and the Making of Hong Kong. We talked a few years ago about, you know, these thousands of Southern Chinese from Guangdong, largely, who were coming through Hong Kong, then heading out to San Francisco for the gold rush,、um, and also coming back. So, how much does Hong Kong itself owe as a transit hub, really? Right, right. It, it really was a transit hub. You know, up, up to the late 1840s, Hong Kong was kind of a was a port. It was an, a, a global port, right? Most of its trade was done with Southeast Asia and with India and and、uh, Britain and Europe, right? So, basically, it, all the trade went 
westward, right? The Pacific Ocean didn't feature, and this is one of the interesting things, that although China is right on the edge of the Pacific, there was very little really trans-Pacific activity. Why was that? Is it just because the Pacific was such a large ocean? I, I really can't explain it, and it's not easy to sail. All right. And I think when the Chinese had a good thing trading with Southeast Asia, they didn't feel that they needed to venture beyond that sort of comfort zone. But when the gold was discovered in California, it really changed the story, right? And everybody was rushing into California, not just from China, but from South America, from Europe, across the Atlantic, right? So what would the time, what would the era have been for that late 1840s or? Uh, well, the, the gold was discovered in 1848, so 1848, 49. The easy gold went up to about uh, 1855, right? When the, I say, the, the easy gold? Yes. When I say easy gold, it's not just the amount of gold, but how easy it was to get. A lot of the gold was very close to the surface, so all you needed was basically a shovel and maybe something to, to um, pan the water, gold in the river, right? So, um, so everybody went in up the mountains to get the gold, and it was just uh, people just thought California was paved with gold. Now, after, so many of the Chinese went there too to work in the gold mines, and the Chinese were quite special because they really didn't mind working hard. So they went to some of the good sites, but even the sites that had been worked by non-Chinese people who considered it too much trouble you know, to dig deeper or to invest in machines. The Chinese just came in and worked on these so-called worked-out mines and were able to make a good earning out of it. So largely, though, the Chinese who were in the gold mines in California were Cantonese? Yes, um, basically from the Pearl River Delta area. And I have to emphasize that they just didn't go to dig gold. They went in to do other things as well. They They started to trade, they opened restaurants, they were engaged in shipping, uh, and um, became laundrymen, right? California actually was not densely populated at all, right? And when people started going up the mountains, there were very few people in the towns doing the work. So the Chinese went there to also, apart from digging gold, uh, took up these jobs. I do find it extraordinary that in the 1840s, these would have been largely men going to California, waving goodbye to their families on the off chance that they made money. Or was it more stable than that? Or was it real big risk-taking? Um, it was It was big risk-taking. But I think you calculate the risk on what your return might be. Well, some families pool their resources together to send one son there. And sometimes people would loan, you know, borrow money in order to make that trip. It was really a risk that they thought was worth taking. Yeah. I mean, what was the immigration issue when, when people went to San Francisco in terms of, was it hard to track individual families with their names? I think this is one of the most frustrating things because the passengers list did not list Chinese passengers. I mean, they would not give the names of Chinese passengers. Um, Western passengers would be listed by name. On the very rare occasion when a Chinese traveled cabin class instead of steerage class, he would be named. But this is so rare, it doesn't really form any sort of database at all. So for people who want who want to trace their family, like in England, you go to the PRO and you can look up ships list and you know passengers list and, and people do that in the States as well. You know, Irish families going to America, they can do that. Unfortunately for Chinese 
the passengers list are basically hopeless. All right, when a ship came in, they would say 342 Chinese. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, you want to pull your hair. Yes, which makes it even more of an achievement what you've what you've pulled together here. I'm talking to Elizabeth Sin, the author of Pacific Crossing: California Gold, Chinese Migration, and the Making of Hong Kong. Now, the the emigrants who were going to California for the gold rush, either to act as uh, work in mines, be laundrymen, set up restaurants, fill these jobs up in these rather uh, depopulized towns, mm-hmm. um, they were largely men. They were largely men. Uh, in some years, when there were thousands of men going to California, there would not be even one woman. In some years, when you have tens of thousands of men, there may be 300 women. All right, so the numbers were very, very low. Now, um, scholars have tried to explain this, and um, many historians, particularly Asian American historians, have tried to say that this is because the Americans were trying to stop the Chinese women from going. And this is true to a certain extent, and it's certainly true after. Um, 1875, when they passed the Page Law, and certainly after the Exclusion Act, which made it you know, the women were screened. Um, however, it doesn't explain why there were so few women before the Page Law. Right? And sorry, the Page Law. And the Page Law uh, forbade women from going into America who were going for loot purposes, that is, to go in as uh, prostitutes, or had been coerced into going. And um, they had to be screened in Hong Kong, and they had to women had to sort of sign a declaration to say that I'm going voluntarily and that I am a a good woman basically, and that I'm not going to be a prostitute, right? Because some were sold as concubines. They were the women who went to California before 1875, and even some of them after 1875 had been sold to be. Prostitutes or to be sold as concubines, all right. And the one of the reasons why they had, you know, the, there was a market for women, and yet there were so few women, was that in those days Chinese women from good Chinese families were not supposed to emigrate. They were not supposed to leave the family, even if their husband left for Southeast Asia or whatever. The women were supposed to stay at home to take care of the father and mother-in-law. And of the children, all right. So the women's place was in the home, and the home, and keep the family in order. There was a market, particularly for prostitutes, and there was a market for concubines. Now, if you were a rich merchant and you couldn't take your first wife, your primary wife, to America because she had to take care of your parents, it would be quite nice to have a concubine in America, right? So women were sold in California to rich merchants as concubines. Now, with these. Uh, the thousands of men who largely came, as you say, from Guangdong Province, they would transit through Hong Kong. So, what was the impact of all of these, you know, over over these decades of these uh, thousands of migrant workers coming through? Right. Well, first of all, it was the the bodies coming through. I mean, the life bodies coming through, and they would need in hotel hostels and inns, and uh, they would eat at restaurants and so forth. So, it's just like having the Chinese tourists coming to Hong Kong, right? So, it, it's sort of Leads to the um, the emergence of many many kinds of businesses and employments and so forth, but because they went to California and they needed to a lot of Chinese foodstuff, clothing, shoes, pots and pans, opium. Um, there was a 
they led to a very thriving trade between Hong Kong and California as well. And because these guys in California were, they made a really good income. They were uh, high-end um, consumers. They led to a very high-end trade between Hong Kong and California. So a lot of the their the, cons- the things that they needed came through Hong Kong to to California. On the other hand, there was goods coming from California as well, the ginseng from America, wheat flour, and quicksilver. Now, you were saying about when the bodies were live, they would be eating at restaurants and uh, they'd be purchasing their opium and pots and pans. And when the bodies weren't live anymore? Right. Um, Well, the Chinese like to be buried at their hometowns near their ancestors and also where the children would be able to pay offerings to them generations after they died, right? And, uh, however, sometimes they did die, you know, in America. And so the, um, a sort of new, um, pattern arise where Chinese who died in America would be buried, uh, for the first time, uh, of what we call the primary burial, uh, but a few years later, their bones would be exhumed and put in boxes and transported back to China for the secondary burial. Now, this is in tune with the Guangdong custom, or the particularly Cantonese custom, of two burials, a primary and a secondary burial. And so, in um, in fact, a lot of Chinese um, bodies were, re- were, a lot of Chinese men were returned to China uh, in, in boxes. Uh, and that, that, too, led to a thriving cargo trade because boxes actually you know was was transported as cargo and also meant that um, there's a lot of social networks had to uh, be strengthened in order for this kind of operation to take place and Hong Kong became not only the place where Chinese left China or where the Chinese returned but also the place where a lot of dead bodies in bones in coffins and in bone boxes uh, would return to China. My thanks to Elizabeth Sin, author of Pacific Crossing, California Gold, Chinese Migration and the Making of Hong Kong, published by Hong Kong University Press. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.